0: On this episode of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, we have Sarah Davis, she's a medical speech voice pathologist who specializes in working with patients who have voice, upper airway and or swallowing disorders, including those with head and neck cancer, she's originally from Cincinnati, she achieved her bachelor's from Miami of Ohio in 2007, and her master's from the University of Cincinnati in 2009. Soon after, she moved to the Southeast and has been in Arizona since late 2020. She has over 13 years of experience in the medical speech pathology setting and voice centers, ENT private practice, and outpatient clinics performing video stroboscopy, acoustic aerodynamic assessment of voice, fees, video fluoroscopy, a variety of voice therapy methods, dysphagia therapy, and treatment of ILO, ALO, VCD, as well as chronic refractory cough and irritable larynx and laryngeal hypersensitivity. She's certified and trained in four MDTP, LSVT, Frango size, manual therapy, myofascial release, facial cupping, the Buteco breathing method, MBS IMP, and levels one and two of still voice training. Sarah loves research and has completed two research studies of her own, one that's published and one that's awaiting publication, and has presented her research locally and nationally at conferences and even for the Weather Channel. (laughs) She's extremely passionate about her specialties within speech pathology and works closely in collaboration with other medical professionals to prioritize achieving the highest level of evidence-based care. Sarah is also the founder of Vox Fit, V O X F I T, a medical speech pathology and voice consulting service striving to educate, coach, and inspire occupational voice users and transform their voices and lives. And I just love this conversation with, with Sarah so much. I know I've chatted with her on Instagram. She's VoxFit on Instagram for so long, but she's such an amazing teacher. And I hope you all really can hear her passion through this episode. Um, I learned so much just in this this episode myself, and I can't wait to hear more from her in the future and hopefully getting her doing more presentations because I just think she's a phenomenal educator in our field and patients are lucky to have her. So thank you so much, Sarah. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast, I'm your host, Teresa Richard, I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders, and founder of the Medislp Collective and MetaSLP Education.
1: This podcast is
0: dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you're a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, My goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together, we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas, because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Just a quick disclaimer that all statements and opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect on the organizations associated with the speakers and are their own opinions solely. Good afternoon, Sarah. Good afternoon. Thank you so much
1: for joining me. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. So tell the people a little bit about yourself. So I'm Sarah, and I'm a speech and voice pathologist. I live currently in Arizona, but I've also been in Georgia, Florida, and originally from Cincinnati. I specialize in voice, upper airway, swallowing, head and neck. I also founded VoxFit, which is a side business of mine that aims to help occupational voice users and also share my passion with voice with the world. Awesome. All right. Okay. So what do we want to talk about today, Sarah? I believe the mission is to touch on upper airway disorders and conditions with a focus on ILO, ALO, Laryngeal hypersensitivity and hyper-responsiveness, as well as the benefit of using laryngeal imaging to help the patient and the clinician understand more about the condition.
0: Yeah, awesome. So this conversation stemmed from I saw that you had posted about this really cool conference that you went to. And I was like, What is this conference? And you, you know, so I was messaging you about it and you're like, it was the coolest thing ever. So talk about that a little bit because I think it's it's to my knowledge, it's a brand new conference. It's a brand new sort of almost like sector of our field that's finally being coined as something.
1: Yes, and I honestly thought it was the first one also, but it was actually the fifth. Ah! The first four years were in Norway, and so this was the first in the U.S. Um, it was incredible. It was at National Jewish, well, affiliated with the National Jewish Hospital, but um, it was at DU in Denver, and an incredible location. And we had professionals from all around the world present that were physicians, specialized physicians, speech pathologists. And we even had mental health coaches and uh, other people that were in related fields, I believe physiotherapists from the UK, and even people that had worked with Olympic athletes. There was just wonderful presentations, breakouts, panels, and even continuous laryngoscopy with exercise, so CLE, that were in breakouts as well with patients or volunteers that were on bikes with the helmet, with bow being scoped. Really, really cool, cool conference. I'd never been to one that was just airway-related only, so highly recommend. I believe they're going to be doing it again in the U.S. maybe next year. There was talk of Pittsburgh, but I don't know if that was the final decision. Um, and what's really cool that I learned... Is there there now is established an international, it's called GLO, it's the global initiative for inducible laryngeal obstruction, and it's called G-I-I-L-O, GLO, and it was established basically at this conference. And you can join, you can become a member and hear all about updates related to these airway conditions, and just become an advocate and part of the organization. So it's really cool to be kind of there for the establishment of that organization and I love it when people establish organizations or support groups or anything that really aims to educate and spread awareness and help others so it was super cool to be involved with that and one of the I believe she was from Norway the lady who established it who's really well known with ILO um, along with a gentleman from Australia so super cool conference yes How did you
0: even hear about it? How did, how did it even come across your plate? Yeah.
1: Mm, goodness. I think I might, for, no, I saw it on the voice listserv. Um, It's called the voice serve. And that is a wonderful tool to be a part of, get emails from related to information and conferences, all things voice and upper airway. I believe I saw it on there, maybe on SIG3 as well. But then it's easy, obviously, nowadays, too, with social media and things like that. But National Jewish has always been known for ALO, which is E-I-L-O, and their their work with establishing a low breathing and all of those. So um, it kind of came from some professionals there, as well as um, Claudio Milstein, who is in SIG3. I believe he put one out, too, in terms of information about the conference. Um, But like I said, as soon as I found out I was interested. I knew I wanted to be there because anything that is specialized, I'm very interested in, especially the things that I tend to gravitate towards in our field. And the way this sounded, I just knew it was going to be amazing and kind of one of a kind. And then came to find out the first four years were in another country. So pretty cool. It was the first one in the US, but definitely stay tuned because I think there's going to be more here coming up. Oh, awesome. All right. Yeah. So, so where should we start? I guess let's, can we
0: break down some of these abbreviations? So ILO, EILO, yeah.
1: Can, yeah. Digest it for us a little bit. Yeah, of course. So we'll start with ILO and, you know, if you just want to call it something, ILO is kind of what it's called. This is something that in the past was always called VCD, vocal cord dysfunction or PVFM. Paradoxical vocal fold motion or PVFMD, paradoxical vocal fold motion disorder. There's been a lot of names for it, but now those are considered a little older. And so now they've evolved the nomenclature to be ILO, inducible laryngeal obstruction. And it pretty much, and then if we tag it on EILO, which is pronounced ALO, according to the conference, that stands for exercise induced laryngeal obstruction. And so both of them fall under the line of airway-induced obstruction, yes, but they're a little bit different. The ILO is more related to upper airway dysfunction because of um, some kind of a trigger, you know, strong perfumes, strong smells, uh, maybe reflux, maybe anxiety. There can be so many different triggers, but this is not related to exercise. And then ALO is just related to exercise, most of the time, high-intense exercise. And so um, that's kind of how you differentiate them. But essentially what inducible laryngeal obstruction means is it's not just the vocal folds, but it's the vocal folds in everything above it that can form like an inward movement that will reduce patency of airflow, airway, um, create feelings of restriction in the throat and negatively impact somebody through their daily life, especially related to breathing. And especially again, if it's ALO related to high intense exercise, which most of these people, especially with ALO, a lot of times are athletes. A lot of times are in the teens and twenties ages, not always, but a lot of the times. And so um, there could be a lot of pressure on them to consistently be performing at top notch. And so this is a huge a condition that really affects these people and especially mentally as well because of high stress, the fear cycle, things like that. ILO, ILO or the goal with this, with either condition is to capture it on endoscopy to really teach the patient. And I know we'll get more into this as well, but teach the patient what's going on in their anatomy because they're feeling like their airway is shutting either condition. And that's obviously scary. And many times these people will go to the ER, they don't know how to respond to what's going on, they get very scared, nervous, and they feel like either they're having a heart attack, they can't breathe. Um, There's a lot that goes along with this in terms of the reaction and fear cycle too. And so the, the important thing is that in their visit to speech pathology and or laryngology, you know, I believe strongly the first visit is very important to identify really what's going on on the inside. And in a perfect world, we catch the quote spasm or we catch that abnormal inward movement or the abnormal obstruction that's created by the functional um, structures in there. And, or just that inward the coming inward of the vocal folds or the other structures during inhalation, which is the opposite of what it's supposed to be. The ideal situation is we capture that, but you know it's not always able to be done. So I strongly believe in just that first exam being so important, even just for education, because to teach the patient about their anatomy and do some breathing recovery techniques with the scope in and teach them how they do have control over their airway, Um, Or they don't, there could always be an obstruction and or paralysis, some kind of a mobility impairment. So you always obviously want to rule those out as well, uh, along with other things with pulmonology, allergy, asthma, et cetera. But these are conditions that we visit and come to. And often the patient is very frustrated by the time they come to our clinic, just because they've already seen like 10 other professionals. A lot's been ruled out, which is a good thing, but they're very frustrated a lot of times by the time they come to you, which is helpful because you can tell them in most cases, this therapy is actually pretty quick because once we can teach them, they do have control over their airway. Uh, It's often a really fairly quick fix because, and it's a lot, li- it can be lifelong depending, but in most cases they can really reroute what's going on. Once they know they have the control, they know exercises to give them the control and they do other things to manage the other effects. Basically. I don't know. That was kind of a general. Yeah. No, no. I, I love that. And I, yeah. And I,
0: and I love the way you explain that, Sarah. I think what's, what's so interesting is I, so I grew up playing sports. I grew up, I played softball and they always said i had sports induced asthma and i i played softball in college i played division 1 softball and it was like every time we had to run these sprints i would get this feeling and and you know i i had a million doctors throw all sorts of you know albuterol inhalers at me and just said it was asthma said it was asthma and i was like but it's not like i had asthma i know what asthma feels like cause i don't i don't have it anymore and so it wasn't until i heard exactly this condition that I was like that's what I had like so so I love it I love that people are actually talking about it now and everything that you just said I'm like that's exactly what I experienced and so I'm so intrigued to hear you know how we actually diagnose it and how we actually treat it because I'm yeah
1: so thank you for that explanation that was wonderful well and that's the truth that truly they say 30% now likely 40% of people have both exercise-induced asthma, and ALO, E-I-L-O, and or asthma and ILO. There's a there's a common commonality of having them both together. But like you mentioned, a lot of times too, asthma is overdiagnosed and really what's going on is more of an upper airway condition. So for the clinician, the way to determine the difference is often in your case history, which is really, really important when you're seeing these patients. You know, you want to find out when this started, how long it's been, what the prior functional status was, the triggers to the symptoms, if the patient knows, the current symptoms they experience, and this is how you really differentiate You know, with an upper airway disorder or condition, the difficulty will be on the inhale, and with asthma, it will be on the exhale. And again, they can have both, remember that, but there will be tightness in the throat with upper airway disorders. And there will be tightness more in the chest with asthma or more pulmonary conditions. Um, Strider could be on the inhale with the airway conditions, wheezing on the exhale, more the lung or the asthma conditions. There could be co-occurring cough or throat clearing or voice change as well. And um, you always want to ask the patient, too, about inhalers, because, again, like you said, often tons are recommended. But do inhalers work? Normally with asthma, they'll work. With an upper airway condition, they often don't. And normally, with upper airway conditions, the recovery is quick. With asthma, it's a little bit longer. So there's a lot of ways that we can differentiate those two. But just keep in mind, also, thirty to forty percent, they do happen together. Yeah, fascinating. All
0: right. So, so I'm I'm curious, Sarah. Like, what exactly is the sort of speech pathologist role in this? So, where do where does the SLP come in? At what point does a patient You know, they might go see their pulmonologist if it's something like asthma, but at what point does it come to our field?
1: Yeah. Often, like I mentioned, I will see these patients after they've seen a ton of other providers. They will often come from a pulmonary or allergy and asthma, or even, you know, where I work, which is more of a a laryngology clinic, ENT clinic. It all depends, but a lot of times they've seen a lot of providers and they're quite frustrated by the time they get to you. So it can kind of, Keep their mind at ease that this can be a fairly quick recovery journey once you get to more behavioral therapy for this. And like I mentioned, I strongly believed in the impo- believe in the importance of using a scope for biofeedback to really teach the patient. I think we have a really important role in providing that. And even if the patients had a laryngoscopy only with a physician then we still have a role in doing a scope again for biofeedback, teaching with that exam, teaching the patient their anatomy, teaching them how techniques are or or are not effective, and really helping them be more comfortable in understanding their own airway. I personally believe when their eyes and their brain finally see that on a screen, You know, magic happens. They really will buy in more and they really understand. So I think we have a huge role in that in terms of diagnostics and biofeedback. And then, obviously, from there, in terms of behavioral therapy, a huge role as well. Often I approach it with number one, discussing ways that they can improve the laryngeal environment because when our larynx is less irritated, we are less susceptible to that constant behavioral irritation, even if that means throat clearing or habitual cough, cause you know, chronic refractory cough also falls under these types of airway conditions as well. Um, you know, we've got ILO and EILO, but then we also have laryngeal hypersensitivity and hyper-responsiveness, chronic refractory cough or throat clearing. There's a lot that kind of goes into the airway and I like to explain in their anatomy, you know, with the screen, but then also in the, the therapy room once we get there, just so they understand the larynx, as much as we think the main role is to use our voice to speak and to sing and all those kind of things. It's actually the first job is to be a gatekeeper to the lungs. And you know, this obviously with swallowing. That's the first job. Our larynx is a gatekeeper and we have to remember that. And so likely this upper airway condition may have begun related to some trigger or related to something that made the patient's airway think, oh, I need to protect and you know the vocal fold shut or those arytenoids came inward or whatever the case may be, your, your brain was telling your body to actually think it's doing its job by protecting you. And in turn, it made it feel like you can't breathe. And then sometimes that can habituate based on triggers or co-occurring anxiety or other things and become like a solidified pattern. So that's why behavioral therapy is so important because we can jump right in and help the patient acknowledge, again, triggers, symptoms, and gain that control and also see it on the screen that they have control over their own airway. Again, in most cases, I could mention um, a a recent case that I I thought was related to alo EILO, the patient was a collegiate tennis player and had the telltale symptoms. And I was so glad I advocated for her to be scoped. And right away I noticed she actually had a vocal fold immobility. Um, she had a paralyzed vocal fold. And it was crazy because at that point, no one had scoped her yet. She came from pulmonary and that's obviously a huge finding. And that is contributing more to her feelings, her symptoms. And so we got her workup for a CAT scan and a lot of other things, even though she went back to college, She's going to keep following up with us. I think see us maybe over Thanksgiving once we get those results and decide what to do next. And, you know, the hard thing about mobility impairments too is if that's their first time being scoped, we don't actually know how long it's been there, but likely I'm assuming her symptoms started within this year. So I'm assuming it could be a new finding, but obviously we want to rule out certain things that could be causing it, The hence the CT scan. But uh, it's just interesting, obviously, like anything, when you finally take a look at what you can learn and teach the patient. So she was obviously excited to have that information and be validated that her symptoms were real. But like I said, sometimes even we don't capture information like that or even the spasm or that inward look. And it's still valuable information for the patient because with that scope in, you teach them breathing techniques, recovery. You show them that when they snip their vocal folds open and that is awesome. An important thing that is often like, "What? why would you do that? Is in therapy, tell the patient, hold your breath, count. See how long you can hold your breath. And likely they can hold it for a while and then say, okay, Look, that's way longer than this episode is occurring, right? And so relax, roll your shoulders, do these breathing exercises. Yes, when it occurs, it's not under your con- uh, control at the beginning, but you are okay. You can hold your breath a long time. Now let's work from that knowledge and help you gain that control right away when it happens and it feels out of your control. Sometimes little things like that just really heighten their awareness to their control and especially over their airway, which is a scary thing. Uh, Related to ILO and that gatekeeper idea I mentioned, laryngeal hypersensitivity. This is dealing with those afferent receptors, the sensory ones. And this could lead to this feeling that the the laryngeal mucosa is irritated and or inflamed. It can lead to a feeling of tightness in there or increased mucus, constant throat clearing. And we all know the more we clear our throat, the more we clear our throat because we're creating mucus by the slamming and just this constant irritation of the tissues. you know. But then you can have laryngeal hyper-responsiveness and this is more the efferent receptors of the larynx, the motor ones. And um, this is more related to maybe muscle tension and that that feeling that we need to um, be tight and or squeeze and push or just um, respond in ways that are not helping us feel relaxed and open in there. So oftentimes related to ILO, it would be again, trigger induced. So the importance of teaching the patient to be aware of their triggers. And honestly, some know right away, They say, I even heard a story about, you know, at the grocery store, when fall comes along like it is now, and those, those spices and those, even those little broom decorations with all the, the smells coming out right at the front, there was a lady that that was one of her triggers and she couldn't even go to the grocery because it would start as soon as she walked in, you know, often people with strong perfumes or chemicals or some kind of smell trigger. That's how I am in the laundry detergent aisle. I can't go down the detergent
0: aisle at the grocery store.
1: Yeah. Yes. And so the mission when it comes to things like that is desensitizing the larynx and helping to normalize the threshold. So the first step is knowing again your triggers. And some people have no idea. So maybe we need to do a log and when these symptoms happen, where are they? What are they doing? Those kind of things to heighten the awareness. But once it's established, there's likely some kind of triggers. Then we want to, number one, if this is related to ILO and it's more causing. Coughing throat clearing with chronic refractory cough, that's one thing. If it's related to more of the breathing condition, then that's another approach, but you would, again, know your triggers, and then when they occur, you would notice the first sensory trigger or the first physiologic precursor to what's going to happen and that could be a feeling of tightness, a feeling of mucus, a feeling of a tickle, a feeling of whatever that is, and get really familiar with that feeling. So the first sign that happens, the you guide the patient to establish whatever the better motor pattern is. If you're targeting cough, throat, clearing pattern, then it would be eight options, hard, hard swallow, using a hard swallow, pressing the tongue up, of water, pop in a hard candy, or cough drop with no menthol, I have a list of like 12 options I usually give patients. That would be more for suppressing, now called substituting the cough or the throat clear pattern. If it's more the breathing issue, again, they're noticing that sensation, and they're responding with certain breathing recovery techniques. Often that sniff, we know in most cases, it will fully open the vocal folds, followed by a pursed lip exhalation, in cyclic patterns, and in a relaxed way as well. And so teaching them that often, you know, I give people a few different options, There's usually four I go to one, obviously, we start with sniff, and we do purse lip exhale, like you have a straw in your mouth. The point of that purse lip is constriction at the in the oral region. And that creates a back pressure. And at the level of the vocal folds and the larynx, it opens it. So that purpose of feeling friction at the front, not only redirects their attention up and out and towards the mouth versus the throat, but it establishes the back pressure, which opens the larynx. So that's the point of that redirection and feeling the friction. But some people, the purse slip isn't enough, especially if they're in the heat of the moment and it's very, a scary situation, you know, so sometimes a sniff and an S sound, the S provides more friction than the purse slip. Sometimes an S, I'm sorry, a sniff and an S-H. Shh, that provides the most friction. It all depends on what's going on. And then I've often found, especially again, related to chronic refractory cough more, people could be in really violent coughing attacks, which leads to breathing issues too. And more of a purse lip inhale followed by a pursed lip exhale is helpful for them. And I always guide, the, the most important thing is actually when you exhale, Feeling the friction at the front, as we know that redirects air up and out, gets the focus out of the larynx, but also creates that back pressure, which opens the larynx. So that's really, really important. And then just being aware of um, breath holding tendencies. If the patient is a breath holder, which, again, a lot of people are nowadays and in general and stress and other things will encourage that. But noticing if there's breath holding going on, we don't want to inhale first because we can breath stack. And so if there's any breath holding at all, you obviously want to exhale first to let go of that, then start the breathing. And so if you exhale first, that would be the purse lip or whatever you decide is most helpful. So right away, you're establishing that friction and back pressure and setting up the larynx for success. So those are often more the manageable ones for ILO and really practicing consistently. And I guide the patient to practice every hour, setting cell phone alarms to go off because we all know from motor learning, our body and our brain learn the best with consistent practice, but not for long periods of time. Um, it's better to be really short periods of time, but higher frequency. And that's how we learn better and in, in, in the heat of the moment when we're experiencing this feeling we will be ready and we know what we're doing despite this scary feeling. And so what I usually say is just 10 breath cycles, whichever one we establish to be the most effective. And maybe we do that with the scope in too, cause we'll do those while we watch. But we'll do 10 breath cycles every hour using cell phone alarms to remind them because life is busy. And I purposefully myself set cell phone alarms to practice voice exercises because I would forget too. So I tell them that and that's real life. So every hour does sound like a lot. And I tell them, hey, you're likely not going to do this forever, like at all. But for now, we need to. We got to retrain your body and your brain and your larynx. You have that control and um, they get on board they understand because I tell them hey 10 breaths are going to take one to two maybe three minutes max of your first part of your hour of whatever that hour is it's also going to relax your breathing and reset you nicely it's a wonderful time to take for yourself so I always encourage that as well so it's kind of like these ideas of number one improve the environment Reduce irritants, um, triggers, exposures, and known things that irritate the larynx, you know, just in general, caffeine, smoking, exposure to smoke, reflux. If that's a thing for the patient, keep it in mind, everything is not reflux. So knowing, you know, maybe an esophageal workup should certainly be performed before it's assumed that's going on. But, you know, going through all the ways to improve the environment, reduce the, the irritants to the environment, train the awareness, and then you get them to the point where it's it's not even that they feel that sensation and then respond with a better motor response, but they also start this if they think the sensation will occur. They already are starting the motor response. So you're totally desensitizing the larynx and re kind of igniting these better patterns. And, and again, that's motor learning and we have to be really annoyingly consistent, but it's not for life. It's till we kind of reroute this pattern. This is amazing, Sarah. You're you're such a good, a good teacher. Yeah, it, I'm, learning, I'm learning so much from you. This is amazing. Oh, yay. Yeah. Yay. It's, me- it's honestly, as you might assume, this is a huge passion of mine. And um, obviously it's air, it's breathing, which is life. And it's so important because these are things that can easily be dismissed as asthma, as anxiety, as you need to see a psychologist, as whatever, you know? And so it's really important. And I think education is huge and that's what would make the patient even buy in more to your clinic versus something else they might go to or experience because education is huge it's empowering it's giving them tools it's helping them understand, and again it's all about giving them the power. As we know, therapy isn't about us. It's about them. It's giving them tools to be independent. And so I really, truly believe in in that power of education, especially related to breathing. And there's so many things we can do to enhance, again, their control besides a medication or an inhaler or whatever the case may be that they could have already been recommended that they didn't feel help from. And, you know, the cool thing about ALO, the more exercise-induced one, is there are lots of ways we can modify techniques based on their sport. Um, like you mentioned, with softball, there's there's different ways that, depending on your sport and what you do and when you experience these symptoms, you can in, in, um, enhance or modify the breathing exercises based on your moves during sports, based on whether or not you're in water or you wear a mouth guard or you have a helmet or whatever the case may be, so we can help the people continue to uh, engage in their sports and feel successful and move on to what they want to do. And it's really important, too, especially when you're working with younger athletes, that you also consider the benefit of not having the parents in the room. You know, sometimes it's really wonderful, but if you kind of get a vibe, there could be this High intense, high stress, type A, etc., kind of personality, and the parents are similar. There is a certain certainly a role for just bringing the patient with you and just kind of learning really what's going on. I, I've seen it in clinic, and I've definitely gotten braver with asking only the parents. I'm sorry, only the patient to come back because you learn a lot more sometimes. And unfortunately, there's even cases I've learned where the patient is actually. Burnt out, and doesn't want to continue their craft, and the they wouldn't want to say that in front of the parents. So you kind of get a little deeper. And although you know we're not mental health providers, there are times we know some counseling techniques, and then obviously also how to refer. And that's another cool thing about this conference is I um, became friends with a mental skills provider, and she sees. ALO, exercise-induced structure obstruction patients virtually, and provides skills to work through this. She even has a support group for these patients. And so I think that's also a wonderful piece yeah, of the it. puzzle, especially related to athletes.
0: Yeah. Cool. I, I love that, Sarah. Yeah. Th- thank you so much for sharing all this. Let me, I, I have a question it might be a silly question, but I think like, in, and I just, I'm going back to my own selfish personal experience here how would you assess this? Like, say it is an exercise-induced something. How do you evaluate that? Like, I know for me, it would only happen when I was sprinting. So like, do you have, I mean, you mentioned at this conference, they did some cool things with people running, but I guess how does the quote-unquote everyday SLP assess that?
1: Yeah, really good question. So in a perfect world, as mentioned, this thing called CLE, continuous laryngoscopy during exercise, would be performed and we can catch what's going on during high intensity because a big thing they talked about was, you know, even if you just go have the patient walk steps or I don't know, sit down and cycle on a bike or something like that, you will likely not catch that spasm because then they're going to walk to your clinic. And even if you scope them quick, it's likely already recovered. So it needs to be during this high intensity exercise that you're going to capture. Again, there's been times I've certainly been able to capture what's going on, but there's certainly been times I haven't, and I do not have a clinic where we have a bike, or a treadmill with the helmet and the scope connected and all the perfect setup. So, again, you do what you can yes I think the scope is super important, even if you don't capture it to really use as a teaching tool. But they talk to the conference easy ways. You can actually kind of design a helmet and get this set up. And, you know, all you really need is like a recumbent bike and or treadmill. And you can even be scoping the patient during. But then if, if we kind of bridge into even breathing pattern disorder, BPD, which is another airway condition that's fairly new to this realm, I believe. It's so important that you assess the patient during high intensity, because even if you have them, like I said, walking or doing something a little lower level, like you mentioned too, related to softball, it only occurred during very specific times. So you want to do your best to assess that. Maybe you don't even scope them, but you have them sprinting. You have them, maybe you go to the pool with them or or if you're able, maybe you go to the field, you go to the um, rink, whatever the case may be, If you're able to, you go there with them in their environment. If you're not able to do that, go outside your clinic, have them start sprints, and then you're really going to hopefully be able to tell when this might occur and work with them in those moments, which is so powerful. Again, the best would be, yes, having that CLE, but even if you don't, there's so much you can do. And then obviously related to just case history, like I mentioned before, it's so important and patient reported outcome measures. The dyspnea index is wonderful, although this is not specific to ILO and ALO, and there was a newer index developed by Todd Olin and his group at National Jewish that's called the ELODI, which is exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction dyspnea index. I believe it was in 2021, and that is specific to these patients, so using this as another tool. Or again, before and after to really show them hopeful improvement in the scores, that's huge. And again, just looking at these scores at the beginning, seeing where they're at and addressing their specific concerns. And again, just providing that education, that's that's huge. But I think we have a, a role too in, in evaluating and seeing these patients in modifying these techniques for their sport or for wherever they have this concern, it's so important we get to that. And maybe it's not ALO, maybe it's ILO, and maybe it's a certain trigger, and you're going to bring that trigger for desensitization training into the room. If it's perfume, that doesn't mean you spray the room because that would be a terrible experience for them. Maybe you spray it on a tissue outside the room, you bring the tissue in and you set it on the table and you start small. And there's a desensitization training that's, maybe you start with salt, which is not a trigger in most cases. And with the salt on the table, ideally this is the idea to the patient that there's a trigger present, although we know it's salt. And they're practicing their techniques during the desensitization training. And then the salt evolves to, maybe you have that tissue with the spray on it in a jar and you let the patient open that jar And you start those techniques. Maybe they open it bigger or maybe they keep the cap off. Maybe we're able to take the tissue out of the jar and set it on the table. Maybe eventually there's more progress with that or like the lady, the example with the grocery store and all the false smells, you work with her a lot to that point. And then, you know, her homework is she goes, she takes two steps in, she's trying to do the techniques. She can always step out. Same thing with, you can always shut the jar, right? Let the patient know they have control, but they're working through this. And it's really, really important to desensitize those um, sensory receptors. And I always like to explain it with antenna. If you guide the patient to think, okay, we have these antenna in our larynx. And instead of let's just say four or a few, the person with a hypersensitive or hyperresponsive larynx has like 69, 50 75 way more antenna than the normal person. So our job is to reduce those sensory receptors and their heightened, you know, responsiveness there and get the patient back to a normal threshold by gaining that control, soothing the larynx, calming those receptors, and it's usually pretty quick like I said. It can be a little scary at the beginning for them. That's why you start slow and you work through through that with them. Uh, Same with the exercise induced or more breathing. It's the same thing. You start small, you teach the techniques. It's all about repetition. And then you start with just seated, but you don't spend the whole session seated. You get them walking, Evolve the walking to maybe jogging and then marching and then running. And then you get into their sport, if it's sport related and um, you modify as you need for the sport, like I mentioned before. Awesome. Thank you, sir.
0: This was an amazing explanation. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Is there
1: anything else that we that you want to cover that we didn't cover? Oh, well, I guess I could mention related to ALO, the exercise induced laryngeal obstruction. There is a set of techniques as established by National Jewish that's called Elobi techniques. And these are, again, specific to high intense exercise. But this there are kind of seven hallmarks of this approach. And again, these are athletes. These are people that's high-intensity exercise focused. And normally there are three different variants you could use, but two are more the focus. And so the first component is plan. You teach the patient to plan the breathing. And um, on the fourth breath, you plan to do a specific inhale and it's a biphasic inhalation because a stands for exercise induced laryngeal obstruction, biphasic inhalation. And so you're planning to do that. You're planning these four breaths. You're planning other parts of these components. Um, Number two, empty. So on the third breath, the exhale, you're going to fully empty in preparation for this very specific biphasic inhale that's going to provide that openness and a lot of good air. And so you don't want to have a ton of air left. You want to empty. You also don't want to empty fully till there's nothing left because that can cause tension, but you just want to make them longer than the normal exhales. Um, Number three is split. And that just means that biphasic inhalation, you're splitting the inhale. And again, there's two main variants that they focus on the lip variant and the tooth I'm sorry the lip variant and the tooth variant yes and so that means the first part of that inhale you're going to create high friction high pressure resistance with either either the lip variant or the tooth variant and then the second part so again splitting the second part of that biphasic inhale is going to be a low pressure resistance and it opens the throat and it's more It used to be called like the Vader breath, like Darth Vader, like this, drop the jaw open and feel that rush of air in the back. And so then the fourth is timing. So, related to that biphasic inhalation, the first part, it's two, I'm sorry, it's one third. So, one third of the inhale is this high resistance one. And, you know, if you're doing the lip variant, it would be like sucking a thick milkshake kind of. You wanna hear a sound, you wanna feel friction. And if you're doing the tooth variant, the bottom lip is in front of the top teeth and it's called squeaky teeth. But again, they're both high resistance for a reason. Again, it creates that back pressure, opens the throat. And then we further open the throat when we're talking about this timing component. Um, The second part, the Darth Vader ideal breath is two thirds. So that would be, right? And then you exhale and you go back to your normal breathing. Forcefulness is the fifth component. And this just means, you know, not forcefulness in the throat, but forth, forcefulness of the friction, forcefulness of the use of the abdominals in the ribs um, and forcefulness with just this idea of this breath is going to be strong and, and helpful and connected. And number six is fullness. Again, the depth of the breath. Get down and out on that inhale and then use that ab- the abdominal idea and the ribs to help you. And component seven is ribs. So shifting that focus to lower down versus thoracic. And you're really thinking of feeling that openness instead of, uh, again, tightness in the throat. You want openness in those ribs. So sometimes that leads to a lot of good breathing practice with um, focused on the ribs. You can have them put their hands on their ribs, use a TheraBand, anything to provide that kind of resistance a little so that you think of breathing into your hands. This is also really good with breathing pattern disorder to focus on a lowered approach, to focus on openness and allowing the body to, to help. The body always knows what to do. It's when sometimes this hyperprotectiveness, gateway gatekeeper idea gets in the way. Or again, the brain could get in the way. So we're just reminding the patients, the body already knows what to do. These bigger muscles know how to help your breathing. And that's what they're for. So you just kind of bring the attention lower down. And again, the rib idea. So this, this Allobe approach is for specifically during this high intense exercise. It sounds like a lot, but you, you can, the patient can learn these seven components pretty easily. And then you can hone in on the specific areas of focus. And often people are like, oh, I can't count my breaths while I'm playing basketball or whatever the case. And you can alter it to be, okay, you do your empty breath. When you think of it, often it's really great to do the empty during an exertion task. Like when you swing the tennis racket and hit the ball, that's a great time to do the emptying breath. And then you do that biphasic inhalation right afterwards. Again, you don't have to be fixated on the four because that can be altered, but that's how you'll teach it but you don't want them to get anxious about, oh, I don't know if I can count and apply this. They can use it as they need. And then when they're in more the recovery, they go back to the four and they get back in that routine. So I wanted to touch on, you know, that idea and also the importance of using respiratory muscle trainers to enhance breathing as well. There's a really awesome program called Buteco, and and I'm trained in this program and I've never learned so much about breathing ever. I love it. And the essential purpose of it is to retrain dysfunctional breathing. And it has gotten people with asthma off of inhalers because they've gained more control of their breathing. So like these ideas of ILO and ALO, yes, they're specific, but just general focus on patterning the breathing to be more efficient, helping people gain that control and ease getting us back to the parasympathetic nervous system, that rest and digest versus fight or flight sympathetic and teaching people to have more 360 or lower focused breathing and nasal breathing instead of open mouth breathing. There's an insane amount of benefit from nasal breathing. There's an awesome book by James Nestor called Breath. Most people have heard of it by now. It's incredible. A really cool part in that book that I love is about lung capacity and basically what they found is lung capacity has a direct correlation to length of life in years. So if we want to live longer we need to focus on our lung capacity, right? And expand that and you know stretch those tissues, focus on stretching, breathing, cardio, even if it's a little bit, a little bit every day can really enhance length of life, which I think is super cool especially for people that like fitness but even if you don't like being active, things like the The breather, the breather fit, the breather voice, um, EMST, IMST, there are different respiratory muscle strength training and respiratory muscle training devices that are insanely beneficial for this idea of expanding lung capacity, retraining breathing patterns, helping people gain that control. And there's studies, lots of studies, which I think could be cited in our little episode, but they talk about the benefits of these devices and actually helping ILO and ALO, as well as just general breathing and kind of getting people with asthma back to normal. So I always like to kind of look at breathing as a whole, And then be knowledgeable about all these upper airway conditions and breathing pattern disorder as well. And just really encourage, I've had so many patients buy that breath book and just love to learn about, you know, breath is the foundation of life. We're never even taught most of these things, you know, even as simple as when we breathe through our nose, it's filtered, it's warmed, it's moistened, it's healthy, it's good air. And when we breathe through our mouth, it's dried, there's no filter. When we breathe through our nose, we're getting so much more oxygen because we produce nitric oxide through our nose, which is a bronchodilator and helps us get better oxygenated blood. And it's like all these little things no one would ever know unless they're trained in this stuff or they hear about it. So yeah, I guess it's become one of my big passions, of course. But But like I mentioned before, helping these patients, it's just huge for their life because breathing and difficulties with it are scary. And if you can play a role in helping them through that and helping them gain the control back, that's huge. And or identifying something that is the reason, which would not be helped by therapy. And that's also when it's very important to know, yeah, this is not therapy is not the the solver for this. We want to go another way. We need to refer you somewhere else. We need to figure out how we can help this obstruction or immobility, those kind of things.
0: Yeah is so, so fascinating. I think, I mean, our field is so cool, right? Like I, we get to do the yeah. cool stuff. And I, I just think like, okay, before it was speech, language, then we added swallowing, then we added cognition. And now I feel like there's this huge airway component that doesn't really fit in any of those boxes either that, you know, it's like, how, how big is our field going to get? But on the other hand, I think it's just so, I think it's so fascinating. And I, what's interesting is my, my son, know season slp for feeding but she's really into this breathing stuff it's probably the least professional thing i've ever said in my life this breathing oh yeah (laughs) but it's like i'm like how did you like learn about this like how did you go from pediatric feeding to airway to breathing to sleep apnea but it's it's i just think it's so fascinating i think it's so cool and i love your passion about this i love how you you're you're teaching you're so good at teaching this stuff it's it's really it's fascinating so thank you so much sarah this was
1: oh thank you yeah well it is really cool like you mentioned her with feeding and actually i have a friend that's an ot that specializes in feeding and she has gotten so into this as well because of the research and what it shows related to tongue posture when children sleep and how that leads to airway obstruction and and other things. So I could see how somebody that specializes in feeding would evolve to more breathing just because of Nasal versus mouth, tongue posture, the role it plays in developing even facial features and obstructions or not, or, or sleeping patterns, breathing patterns. So it's really interesting, kind of the evolution, yes, of all this breathing stuff and and all the things we can do with it. And, and again, and just in terms of teaching, because I, I definitely think in our world today, there's more of a gravitation, unfortunately, towards sympathetic, you know, go, go, go. And I'm certainly a culprit of this myself because I've always been taught busy is better. Let's go, let's do more, you know, but actually parasympathetic is the way to go. Rest and digest. Sympathetic is when we need it. And so kind of just focusing, like I mentioned, maybe not every hour, but setting time aside, setting those cell phone alarms to practice, even just nasal breathing for a minute or doing mindfulness exercises or, you know, feeling your own sides and ribs and breathing into them or trying these breathing trainers, I do them myself too. I I practice what I preach and I like to do them first before I recommend them to patients. So I really believe in it. And doing this kind of thing for your own life, even if you have no complaints, it's only gonna enhance, again, length of life in years if we're talking about lung capacity. So yeah, I I believe it's really cool stuff. And uh, I'm really appreciative that you let me share it on here. Again, thank you so much, Sarah. This
0: was awesome. We will make sure that we have pretty much everything we touched on here in the show notes, because I think there's going to be, I think this is going to open up a lot of doors for a lot of people to really want to investigate this work. So thank you, Sarah. And then, and I, you know, I know we've chatted online for years, it seems
1: like, where can people find you on on Instagram? Sure. So my Instagram is just at boxfit with an underscore V-O-X-F-I-T. And I actually created that because it combines, I hoped to help people see it combines the medical and fitness or movement related worlds because vox is the Latin word for voice and then fit obviously. So, so that's kind of the thought with uh, the Instagram handle, but my website also voxfitconsulting.com and happy to answer any questions or help in any way. Thank you so much, Sarah. appreciate you so much. Of course. Thank you.
0: And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit SwallowYourPridePodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at TeresaRichard.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next week.